0: Welcome to Stacy on the Right, the podcast uh, where we are just having conversations, uh, a lot of them about educational choice, educational freedom, and what to do about the state of education in America today. And today is no different. We have with us Erica Sanzi, Director of Outreach for Parents Defending Education. I love the work that they're doing. I love the bipartisan, apolitical nature of it, and I love the fact that Um, they're like literally just a few months old and they're still doing the most, especially in comparison to some of the government organizations like the National Education Association. I know it's a union and it's not the government, but it kind of is the way they behave. It's not that good. They should be getting demerits for bad behavior. Also, the uh, American Federation of Teachers also should be getting demerits. Erica, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you today because one of the things that has been really, uh, you know, roiling the news cycle is this National Education Association annual conference where they took some votes to do certain things. And I'm not sure, which which are we talking about here, the NEA conference or the uh, American Federation for Teachers?
1: So the NEA, both of those unions um, have been in the news recently when it comes to critical theory in the schools. Um, The NEA maybe made the most news because they had their annual conference, which is always around the 4th of July. And usually, nobody really pays attention to it except for education nerds like me. But in the wake of COVID, in the wake of parents suddenly being much more aware of what's going on with their kids' schools, being frustrated by the reopening situation, and also listening in and seeing school materials, they're much more engaged. So the NEA, for listeners who don't know, for a few weeks we heard that, you know, critical race theory is not a thing. It's not happening in schools. It's a law school class. There's no way that any students in K-12 are... Getting anything related to critical race theory. Well, fast forward a couple weeks, and the NEA, again, the largest teachers' union in the country, votes um, on a resolution to teach social studies informed by critical race theory in all schools to promote the ideas of critical race theory and to investigate and target its opponents. Now, they are mislabeling critical race theory as nothing more than an honest teaching of history. But you and I, and anyone who has spent even a little bit of time studying the subject knows that that is a completely dishonest representation of what it is.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's completely dishonest, but I think what what is most dis- concerning is that they appear to be in the very um they're in the process of attempting to whitewash everything that's already happened. So the experiences of parents and families who are already in the throes of critical race theory being embedded in their children's education from the last school year, parents who've seen it in action, whose children have come home upset and, you know, using the, the lingo, I need to renounce my privilege, I need to put down my privilege, or why are we so privileged, or why is our family so racist, those kinds of things, the the NEA attempts to be saying that that didn't happen to you kind of like the, uh, the In Star Wars, the original Star Wars movie where Luke passes his finger, it was actually Obi-Wan Kenobi passes his fingers over the the two stormtroopers and says, these aren't the droids you're looking for. And they're like, these aren't the droids we're looking for. They're attempting to Obi-Wan Kenobi parents across the country, but it's not working. That That's Star Wars. That's not real. In reality, parents had the experiences. They confronted school boards. Some school boards have been replaced. And in response to that, they're not changing their methodology. They're actually digging in and doubling down on it.
1: Yeah, I mean, the disrespect for parents, it has always been breathtaking, but this takes it to a new level because they are telling parents that what they are seeing with their own eyes and hearing with their own ears is not happening. And the other thing that they're doing is they are smearing parents who are raising questions and concerns as racist white supremacists. And they are also implying, and the the media is helping with this a lot, is they continue to label everybody who's concerned about this as being right-wing. Now, I am, um, because I'm the director of outreach at Parents Defending Education, I am talking to parents and grandparents also, actually, uh, all the time. And this is the most bipartisan phenomenon I've seen maybe in my lifetime, so as much as there is this convenient dishonest narrative that it's all people far on the right who are white supremacists who are upset about this, the reality is that there are tons of lifelong Democrats and even progressives who are reaching out to groups like mine um, because they're concerned about the materials coming home from their children's schools.
0: So we know that th- that this is not good for par- for parents or kids, but I'm wondering Erica. Why we haven't seen the, the primary message against critical race theory simply be that America's public schools are not producing high school graduates or grade school graduates or middle school graduates who are prepared to keep up with their peers internationally or with their peers in private school or with their peers in home schools. So since the educational product is not up to snuff, it seems that, as if the focus should be intensely on improving math, reading, um, you know, com arts, literature, science, all of the sciences, everything having to do with the basic building blocks of education. You can deal with critical race theory and, you know, political change and activism after every kid is getting a fantastic world-class education. The fact that no teacher seems to be concerned with that to me means that public schools really aren't operating the way a school is supposed to operate.
1: So I think that there are teachers concerned about it. I mean, a couple things come to mind. One is that the rank and file members of the union usually have no idea what the national, what the union's doing at the national level. I was actually in the NEA twice, not by choice, but it was required at the time. So when I was teaching in Massachusetts in California, I was an NEA member. Um, so, but, You are correct in the sense that the unions will always pivot away from student outcomes because they know they cannot win that fight. So they will constantly distract and focus on everything other than student outcomes. You may not be aware of that in 2019 at the NEA's annual conference. So again, right around the July 4th weekend, there was a a measure or a new business item that was defeated. So let's think of it this way. The critical race theory business, new business item was approved last week. This I'm going to read to you right now, a business item that was defeated in 2019 because it speaks to your point about student achievement. The measure that was defeated read like this the NEA will rededicate itself to the pursuit of increased student learning in every public school by putting a renewed emphasis on quality education. That did not pass.
0: The, re- the NEA will rededicate itself to <laughs> improving quality education. Student
1: learning, correct. So when it was about increasing student learning in every public school and putting a renewed emphasis on quality education, It went on to say the NEA will make student learning the priority of the organization. That failed. So one thing people have to get really, really honest with themselves about if they aren't already is that student learning is not, never has been the mission of the NEA or the AFT, the other teachers union. They are concerned about their members. They are very, very ideologically driven. That has gotten much more intense in recent years. I mean, I, I remember glossy pamphlets showing up in my mailbox telling me to vote for Howard Dean for president back when I was in the NEA. But what we're talking about now has gone way beyond that, because now we're talking about being an ideological capture where, again, they're focusing on. Promoting activism, they want their teachers to be activists. They want students to be groomed to be activists, and they are and they are pushing students and their teachers into an, an orthodoxy where a diversity of views is unwelcome. And so then you add to that. Let's look at the literacy. Scores of our students. Well, two thirds of American children don't read on grade level, and if you look at numeracy, and if you look at science, and if you look at civics knowledge, we're doing so poorly that that they can't let us focus on that because of how abysmal it is. And for some strange reason, you know, media outlets aren't focusing on that either. I've never understood why in conversations about Black Lives Matter, I've never understood why we don't talk about the literacy rates of black boys in the eighth grade. In California, one out of 10 boys, black boys in the eighth grade can read on grade level.
0: So, and and again, these are kids who are then, they're much more prone to being, um, they, they end up in prison. That That's what actually happens to them. And I I don't like the idea that we had that that that's the discussion that we have to have or that's what we say about them, but it's the truth. And so not liking hearing it or not liking to talk about it doesn't change the fact that those boys, I mean if you can't if you can't read or do math on grade level, it means you can't hold a basic entry level job for minimum wage because those jobs are becoming increasingly more linked to technology. So the technology works for you, but you still have to be able to read and do some basic math. So we're we're cheating these kids because the per pupil expenditure goes to the school as long as their bodies are in the chairs a certain percentage of the time the money is being spent the teachers are being paid the buildings are being you know heated and cooled and and the lunches are being you know purchased and all of that but the kids themselves are not getting what is being paid for and that should be something akin to a criminal act going to school every single day for a whole school year and getting nothing out of it, because that's what's happening to these boys when they're that far behind. They've literally gone to school and just sat there and not gotten anything out of it year after year after year.
1: That's exactly right. And when we hear talk about the school to prison pipeline, people like to focus on, you know, racist acts by teachers that that cause children to end up you know disciplined and therefore in the criminal justice system. And I'm not saying that that doesn't exist. That is a that is a small piece of it, but the much larger piece of the of connecting the dots from school to prison is literacy. 85% of juvenile offenders are considered functionally illiterate. And then when you get up to the adult population, 70% of incarcerated people don't read above a fourth grade level. So so when you know when a union is this blatant about where its priorities lie and where its priorities do not lie you know we have to get really honest about what that means for us as a society and what it means is again the basic mission of a school i mean if we can't even all agree that all children deserve to learn to read when they go to school right then 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 can we agree on anything
0: Well, and I I see this as this is a place where we really aren't agreeing on anything because most parents, so if if we had a functioning news media, we would have known it would have been a nationwide story that kind of blew the lid off of, you know, really everything for that news day or for the week that the nation's largest group of teachers got together and were unable to vote in a business item that basically says, we're going to focus primarily on educating children and improving their educations. That is their actual job. Why did they even need a business item? It's isn't, isn't educational outcome. The mission statement of every teacher isn't, it should be the mission statement of every school if things are not oriented towards that then what are they doing there why are parents volunteering and buying all the christmas gifts and you know buying all of the teacher end of year gifts why are why are why are people doing all of this if the kids are going there but the primary reason they're going there isn't to educate them
1: well one thing that's for sure the unions have been very successful at is it, is confusing the general public about the difference between you know the teacher in their child's classroom who they know and love and the union organization, you know, that the teacher is a member of that is arguably the most influential group when it comes to Democratic Party, right? So it's hard to make that connection. You've got a teacher that's drying your child's tears and sending you these lovely emails and doing these fun activities in class, right? So so it's like it's, parents tend to love the teachers that they know, and they have a hard time understanding what this giant behemoth is that is having so much influence on the legislators at the local level and also in the state level and then at the national level.
0: Yeah. Now, they may
1: be... I do get yeah. the sense, I will say, I do have... Because I've been working in education and in education reform. So I was teaching from... I started teaching in 1998, but then I became really focused on reform around 11 years ago. And so... I have to say, I've never seen the sleeping giant awake as I do now. And to give you, and for example, like you probably heard, um, but your listeners may not have, within about forty-eight or seventy-two hours of this most recent conference by the NEA, they scrubbed their website of all of the new business items that had been passed. So suddenly, the you know the link where you would go to see this, the critical race theory resolution that had been passed. That was gone. But interestingly, this resolution from 2019 that had been defeated, the one about dedicating themselves to student learning, that had also been scrubbed from the website. And my sense is it's because, you know, again, no one's ever really paid attention. And suddenly they had a massive backlash. And so they took it down.
0: Yeah. And, and I think it also has to do with, so if you think about it, Erica, a massive backlash comes with the, the number one thing that we know, a massive backlash of any kind or any interest, any viral story, the increase in web hits goes up. So any webmaster, even the most basic webmaster can tell you what pages are being visited during a, you know, when your website has got so much traffic that it it is on the verge of crashing Um, And so they looked and they saw that parents were looking at the resolution from 2019 that page had a lot of hits the pages with CRT had a lot of hits so rather than deal with it and say you know what. We're in the wrong direction here. You know, we either we want to be we should either go work for, you know, the D- DNC maybe and be activists full time or we should continue to teach, which means we have to get back to the hard work of actually being interesting and funny and fun and teaching kids things that, you know, at times they're not going to want to learn. Um, they looked at their web traffic and decided to take down the pages that parents were going to because it, the information indicts them.
1: It absolutely does. And, and they have always banked on the fact that no one is paying attention. And so now people are paying attention, and they decided that for their brand, I suspect, they needed to take it down. Now, the the second largest teachers union, the American Federation for Teachers, they've been a messaging mess on this as well, because their leader, uh, Randy Weingarten, was just out saying that critical race theory is not being taught in any elementary, middle, or high school. She said that. But at the same time, she's talking about how she's created a legal defense fund to support and defend teachers in her union who continue to teach it and who decide to defy if they live in, you know, if they teach in states where they have passed these laws and they decide to defy the law, you know, that, that they're going to defend them. And then in addition to that, again, they've decided to spend money on investigating and targeting people who oppose what they're doing.
0: So can you talk about the investigating and targeting a little bit? Were there any other details besides that statement on because I, I, I'm not sure how a public school, uh, teachers involved in a public school can engage in investigating and targeting parents who are the taxpayers who fund their building. I'm still trying to figure out how that that's possible.
1: So, again, my sense, and I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but my sense is, again, that this isn't the rank-and-file teachers doing, that this would be at their national level. The national organization was going to invest money in um, investigating. Now, what I'm not clear on, but it's groups, especially. So, like, Parents Defending Education, I believe, is named. I believe that we're named as one of the targets of their investigation. So they want to dig and dig and dig and find out all the the reasons that we're so evil. Because, of course, we have to be evil to be pushing back on this. Um, And and then, but there is concern that they're also talking about targeting, you know, parents that are up at these school board meetings around the country and then, you know, and then end up going viral. So um, I'm much more concerned about individual parents than I am about organizations like mine because, again, it would be strange to me if they weren't coming after us. That's what they do.
0: I think it's kind of disturbing. Even So our our teachers' union leadership, the teachers' union leadership, they are not actually teachers anymore then, or they, they were teachers and they're not anymore, or they were never teachers.
1: Yeah, so like the executives at these large teachers' unions usually have a background of being classroom teachers or school administrators, but then they're not once they, once they become, you know, executives at, at the union, they have a ton of employees. Randy Weingarten makes half a million dollars. Oh. (laughs) Her salary is, last time I looked, it was 500,000. So, but she loves to, she does love to, of course, she hates the 1%. She always talks about the 1% and then we're like, yeah, but. Aren't you in the one percent?
0: Five hundred grand a year puts you firmly in the top ten percent or five percent, depending. I'd say top five percent of income earners in America. Five hundred thousand a year, just just for her. There's no telling if she has a spouse and if that spouse earns money as well. So we're we're talking about that's serious income. That that's yeah, that's a really okay. good living.
1: And then you have, and then there's building reps, right? So each school building usually has a few people who are like their building reps. They're building union reps, and so they'd be the ones that would be, you know, kind of like communicating between the faculty and the union. They'd, they'd kind of be that person. So, for example, when my district where I live was figuring out what to do with with reopening last year, um, whenever there was public comment, you would hear the local, you, chat, you know, union people would speak on behalf of their members which of course their members would get really upset because they weren't really representing their members they were really representing the union's position which often doesn't even reflect what the members actually want so they're very involved locally but well, but 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 that's different than this big national organization that pumps a ton of money into campaigns and again if you look usually when you look at pres- at the presidential campaign donations The NEA and the AFT are usually like either at the top or very close to the top. So they give a ton of money at the national level, and then they give a ton of money at the local level and at the state level. Like I live in a state, I live in Rhode Island. And so we're a state that's just so heavily influenced by unions that that there's always a direct line between union money and, for example, people who sit in our General Assembly who try to shut down charter schools at every turn.
0: Yeah, because that, that's the other nasty side of this is, you know, so without the NEA and AFT opposing school choice, there would be other options for parents. So parents wouldn't have to confront the school board, not get any resolution and then kind of go home and, you know, kind of just sit on their hands and think, well, what do I do now? Because most parents aren't just automatically pivoting to school choice as in homeschooling. They're, they're not automatically pivoting to that because parents are used to the current system where you just make sure you buy a house in a good school district and then you start preparing your child for school and then you get them into a decent preschool you know half a day someplace and then you you transition them into kindergarten and then after that it's interacting with the school but their education is largely in the hands of teachers who you've met and feel like you trust and your neighbor's kids are in the same school so you're in a community of people who are accessing the same thing. Most parents don't then say after years of that and they realize CRT is going on. Oh, well, I'm going to homeschool and then automatically just set up a pod or a homeschooling, uh, organization or, or, some kind of a co-op and then move on. That's why homeschooling is, is still a significant minority as opposed to something that's more prevalent across the country because you have to take, take charge of everything. You become basically an administrator of your child's education and that homeschool is you. Um, so this is a, a really interesting, Dynamic. The school board is elected regular people. And then you have the teachers who are a part of a union that doesn't represent them. And then you have the union that actively works to subvert any option that parents might access when they don't like what the union is putting out, the union school. And the uh, now indoctrination that they're engaging in, because they've become so bold. They really know there aren't viable options for the majority of parents. They know they have a stranglehold on education. So they're very bold about their political aspirations and them not being about education.
1: Yep. You just laid it out pretty correctly. Yep. They they know that residentially assigned schooling traps a lot of other people's children in schools that they don't want and that aren't working for them. And they will die on the hill of making sure that families do not have options. And that's obviously well documented. I mean, if you didn't have, I mean, most of the people in my state who take money from unions to fight against low-income families having options, well, they themselves have options. I mean, we've got legislators who pay 50 grand a year to put their child in a private school. But then... Work tirelessly to make sure that no that that families who don't have discretionary income like that, they make sure that they have absolutely no options and that they are you know consigned to keep attending a school that has been failing the community for generations.
0: Yeah, and then in areas where the schools aren't failing, so the 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 biggest issue um, that the CRT fight has, and it's kind of a two edged sword, Erica, is. Um, so while while parents in inner cities really don't have another option because uh, socioeconomically they cannot afford to simply say, fine, we'll just put our kids in this private school, people who live in the suburbs do have options. They can uh, take their child and, you know, m- rearrange their budget just a tad and find a place that they can afford to put their kid for a private education. And we saw that during COVID-19 when certain school districts said they weren't reopening they were going to be virtual here in our area. We had a it was like a flood of applications and kids moving into the private schools in the area and We happen to have a lot of private schools for for us to be a smaller city you know number twenty five media market. We have an enormous number of private schools and so uh the administrators at the private schools were saying, you know parents who are slowing around on." Uh, you know, committing for next year, you'd better make your move because we have an influx of public school parents who are looking for an option for in-person instruction. Mm-hmm. So we had a lot of new kids at my daughter's school. Um, at the grade levels, the, there were especially pops and in, in, uh, the younger kids, their parents just moved their kids to a place where they knew they would be in a classroom. But it, it is, it's kind of depressing to think about people in the inner city who are using the public schools and they really, they they can't afford to move. They certainly can't afford to use the private school that may be in their area. There aren't as many private schools and especially the ones that are in the inner city are very expensive. So, you know, it's, it's like the people who need educational options the most are the ones who are least likely to have anything that they can access at their fingertips. And that is due almost solely to actions taken by the NEA and AFT
1: a large portion of the blame for that does lay at their feet. I mean, they're they're devoted, dedicated to making sure that parents don't have options. And, and that especially hurts the families that you mentioned who live in the inner city and also rural families who have no options at all either.
0: And I just want to say for um, a group that consistently calls you know, Republicans and school choice advocates, racists, and the people that are most negatively impacted by the actions they take happen to be black, it feels as if the accusation of racism is going in the wrong direction. And I, I'm not for any 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 length of time saying that the AFT or the NEA are, you know, populated by a bunch of racists. But the the impact is, that it widens the gap the inequality that everyone likes to talk about we need to to do something about inequality the key to reducing inequality is to increase the level of education that people attain what regardless of their ethnic background or their socioeconomic background everyone needs to have that high school education and be you know work ready job ready and really just having that as a as, as something every american has um, and not having school choice, not having options for people when you're frustrated at one place, like, I, you know, I, I never have to worry about it, Erica, if I'm in a store, and I get mistreated, or I don't like the product or service, I can go to another store, I can always find another option, I can go to Etsy, I can, you know, I can order on Amazon. Yeah. Anytime I'm frustrated with an option, I can find another one. If I don't like my car, if I don't like my car dealer, I can think of all the different things we do in our lives. I don't like our gardener, the the guy who helps us with our landscaping. The tree trimmer doesn't do it right. There's always another option. Education is the one area in our country where so many millions of Americans are locked into one choice, and if they become dissatisfied with it, their option is to maybe go viral on TV um, or on YouTube and still have nothing done about it and be in the same position the next year.
1: Yes, you are correct. And what's fascinating about it, and not in a good way, is that We see the highest level of support for charter schools and also for private school choice among Black parents. So I think it's about 70% or so of Black parents support and are in favor of parents having choices. And yet the party that says that they care so deeply about Black Americans and the party for whom Blacks overwhelmingly vote when it comes to this issue, they're completely out of sync. The lowest level of support for school choice comes from white progressives.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: So, and it has increased, so Hispanic families, black families, they are the most likely to support school choice. And yeah, white progressives are the least likely to support school choice. So on that's just an issue that's like completely, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance on that. And unfortunately, this administration under Joe Biden, I mean, you know, Barack Obama didn't have the support of the union. They they supported Hillary in that election. And so he didn't really owe them anything. And he was a champion for at least for charter schools and for, you know, more reform minded than where we are now. Mm -hmm. This president, you know, Biden made it clear while he was running, you know, whose side he was on on this issue. So you know, on the, again, on the, so on the school choice issue, he's not doing anything that he didn't tell us he was going to do. So when we see, you know, when we see CDC guidance coming out that has exact language that was drafted by unions, it's awful and it's corrupt, but it's not that surprising.
0: Yeah, no, he he did telegraph beforehand because he is beholden to the unions because they've always supported his campaigns in the Senate. And when he was became the nominee for the Democrats, there it was an easy support for them. They were fully on board with him, and so he does have, you know, uh, strings attached that that are they, they're not like tiny strings; they're like ropes. He's not he's not going to let go of those. Um, I, I do I do think it's interesting that Barack Obama, um, while he was in favor of charters, he could have done so much more as the first black president. He could have said definitively from the White House podium. As a black parent, although my children are afforded the luxury of going to said well friends and having a sniper on the roof and custom lunches, um, most black children don't have that access. And so regardless of my political affiliation, as something for black families across the country that look like mine but don't have the same access that mine has, I am going to be the champion of school choice And it's not a political issue. It's not an issue for left or right. It's not about not wanting teachers union support. It's about making sure that a segment of our society that's been left behind is uh, acknowledged from this place, from the White House, and given something that will actually change their lives for, for good for the foreseeable future. And if he'd said that, the NEA and the AFT wouldn't be able to call him a racist they wouldn't have been able to say that he hates working class people or, or anything like that. He's the one person in America, had he said that, that he could have completely changed the landscape for education for the foreseeable future. And his legacy would have been perfectly preserved and inculcated against a lot of the criticism that Republicans like myself level against him for the things that we don't feel he did well during his presidency. Because there's nothing like seeing families come out of educational poverty and into the kind of the richness and wealth that he had educationally because he was able to provide a world class education for his daughters who now, you know, take a gap year and then go to Harvard. Most kids aren't doing that. I mean, yeah. we, we do very well, and my kids are not taking gap years. They're not attending Ivy League schools. Um, partly it's an ideological decision, but it's also about, you know, the cost of those educations, and we just, we're, n- we're not in a position to saddle our kids with that kind of debt or pay cash for that ourselves, so they're attending much less pricey institutions, but still getting good educations for, for university, but it's, it, you know, there just aren't very many families who can do what the Obamas did for their kids educationally. And I really feel like it's a it's a disappointment that I share with a lot of individuals and uh missed opportunities for Barack Obama.
1: I totally agree. I mean, it would have been heroic really for him just to, to have stood up and said that. And there's a part of me that thinks deep down he does actually think all those things. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. kind of too bad that he didn't come out and say it. I mean, on the contrary, under his administration, I can't remember now if it actually happened or not, but I know that they were trying to shut down the DC Opportunity Scholarship Uh during his administration. And that's again happening now. And um, it's just so unfortunate because you're talking about literally, you know, the poorest children who live, you know, not far from the White House Uh having access to schools that work better for them, you know, for whatever reason, right? Again, like I always try to remind people, there are siblings who end up attending different schools because one size just doesn't fit all when we're talking about educating children. And yet when it comes to families who have the least money, the least power, um, they're expected to all attend the school that they are residentially assigned to. You know, even if that school has been on a list of failing for decades. I was recently at um, community meetings in Providence. Providence, Rhode Island has had a scathing report come out about the quality of their schools and they were doing these community meetings and parents and families were coming out and there were people were crying and yelling and it was a very emotional event. But one of the things that struck me was how many parents who went up to the microphone said that the schools were equally bad when they went attended them and now they were watching the very same thing happen to their children. Mm. So we are we are talking about generational failure and an unwillingness for people in power to do whatever they can to disrupt that generational failure, which leads to generational poverty.
0: Well, you know, uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same, 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 same thing again and again and again and again and and expecting a different result. And educationally, perhaps the benefit, you know, there's always an unintended consequence or a silver lining. Perhaps Mm -hmm. it could be that critical race theory, which they thought they'd, they'd be able to implement it without any backlash because parents have their kids' education on autopilot in public schools. And then we had the pandemic. And Lord knows we don't want to have a pandemic again, and we certainly don't, we don't find much in it that we could say, oh, that was good. But if parents waking up to CRT gets us more educational choice and breaks their stranglehold, um, I, I, that's a silver lining I'll take all day, every day, because it will change kids' lives and keep them out of prison. And that should be a goal for every American, regardless of political ideology, or even regardless of where we live. Um, because every kid who ends up in a life of crime endangers us all and makes our country less safe and less of the place that we all know and love. Uh, It's such a pleasure to talk with you. I could talk to you for days and days and days about this. I I just, it's so nice to find another, uh, you know, kind of soldier at arms uh, for education, school choice, and for sensible uh, solutions in public education. Erica Sanzi, Director of Outreach, Parents Defending Education. It's defendinged.org, one of my favorite websites. Thank you for being here today.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I could talk to you all day too.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Erica. Take care. So I want to tell you about one more thing that's super important to me. And uh, I, I get a big kick out of sharing it because those who have access to this have actually I've had people reach out to me and say, we're using the Alliance for Shared Health. And we're really grateful to you for sharing it, which, you know, I don't I don't need that part of it. But I do love hearing that it's working out. And this is it's an option that people really don't consider. And that's health sharing. So the Alliance for Shared Health actually allows you to sign up for health sharing. They have a ministry with over 40,000 households participating, and you share in the financial burden of healthcare expenses, which includes critical illness, accidents, dental, and vision. You have a virtual care provider that's free to you. You get your prescriptions from the pharmacy using a prescription card, just like you do with your current health insurance. And you can order lab and imaging tests at up to 80% off. You have open enrollment, Right now, it's year-round. You can sign up at any point. If you're experiencing a job loss, sign up. If you're looking at your health insurance costs and thinking this is no longer affordable, sign up, give it a try. You can save up to 70% on your monthly premiums and partner up with a ministry that is just making huge strides in the lives of people across the world. Listen, you can go to stacyontheright.com or FamilyVisionMedia.org and check them out. Click through. If you need any help with it, you can always use the contact form at stacyonthewright.com. I can connect you with someone who can help you through the process. Listen, it's the Alliance for Shared Health, changing healthcare and changing lives. And that's the podcast for today. Listen, go over to StacyOnTheWrite.com. Sign up so you get the notifications so you can get the show notes post that comes out every day just before the night program starts on SiriusXM Patriot 125. All right, until next time.